Welcome to Words of Grace, radio ministry of Elder Ben Winslet, pastor of the Flint River Primitive Baptist Church near Huntsville, Alabama. We invite you to stay tuned to today's broadcast. Today's broadcast is entitled An Open and Honest Talk About Roe v. Wade. Now, just as a bit of an introduction, first of all, hear me out. If you're tempted after hearing the title of today's broadcast to hit off, Just give me a chance, because as we come to the close of today's broadcast, there are going to be some very important things that I need to say to you, if you're a Christian, about what you and I can do, what opportunities we have in a post-Roe v. Wade world. But I do understand the temptation to change the channel, because I'm sure by this point, after Roe v. Wade has been overturned and it's been all over the television and the newspapers and websites— and political commentary, we're probably tired of hearing people scream at each other about that issue. And certainly, I would find myself in that category of people who are tired of seeing others scream at each other. Also, as a little bit of a preface, it's never our intention to use this platform, Words of Grace, this radio broadcast, for politics. Now, while I do not allow this program to be a political program, at the same time, We make exceptions when it comes to moral issues, issues such as abortion or slavery or sexuality, oppression, biblical marriage, violence from the government to others that is not warranted. The concept of unjust wars, while we don't speak about politics, issues that are moral, well, those are biblical issues. And so you see this in the life of John the Baptist when Herod had taken his brother's wife, what John the Baptist does is he tells him that what you've done is not lawful. And so we can act as Christians as a sort of conscience for society. We're to be there to diffuse situations, to be the burr in the saddle of those who would do things that are contrary to God's Word. We ought to simply proclaim what God's Word says. And when this comes to an issue that might be political, that encroaches on the realm of the moral. Well, certainly we are to speak. Not only are we permitted to speak, but we're commanded to speak. This is how we are the salt and the light of this wicked world in which we live. So as we come to the concept of the sanctity of human life and how abortion should be viewed from Scripture, and this is still laying some groundwork for things that we want to talk to you about as we come to three exhortations in a post-row world. We want to be very clear that abortion is a moral issue, and taking the life of a pre-born baby is indeed wrong. What do we call it when we take the life of another human being? And you can say that word for me. What is it called legally when someone's life is taken away without proper justification. And when I say proper justification, I mean this isn't a military defending their country from an invader. That would be a just cause to take a life, and Scripture has examples of that that are commended. By faith, people repelled armies of aliens, according to Hebrews chapter 11, referring to alien nations invading them, not extraterrestrials, but foreign nations. The government has the power of the sword to take the lives of those who would do evil. And so that would be another biblically justifiable way when someone is indeed guilty of something, and it's not a false allegation for someone's life to be taken. That's justifiable biblically. 
But when we refer to the taking of someone's life without justification, without the proper reason, for no reason, we refer to that as murder. And so the taking of a baby's life is indeed tantamount to murder. Now, why is it murderous to take a baby's life? Well, taking a baby's life is wrong. Taking anyone's life is wrong. Taking your life is wrong. Taking the life of any other human being outside of examples like we've already cited is wrong because you and I are made in God's image. We are image bearers. In the book of James chapter 3, we read, Therewith, with the tongue, we bless God, our Father, and with the tongue, we curse men, which are made after the similitude of God. And James' point is, if a fountain can't bring forth both sweet and bitter water, then we shouldn't use our tongues to curse men and to praise God. We should be careful with the things that we say, but the reason we shouldn't curse men is why? Because they're made after the similitude of God. This is one of many scriptures that would attest to that fact. We find this early in the book of Genesis, as God makes man, male and female, he created them. In the image of God created he them. And so humans, bearing the image of God, they are to be treated differently than other creatures that exist out in the world. It's not wrong for us to put ant bait stations out in our house to keep an ant infestation away or roaches away. It's not wrong for us to kill a wasp if they make a nest on the dormer of our house to keep our children from getting stung, because ants and roaches and wasps are not made in God's image. It is wrong to take the life of another human being, any human being, because we are made in God's image. Now, babies are alive, And so this being a moral issue is very clear and very plain as far as I'm concerned and as far as Scripture is concerned. Babies are alive, and scientifically, I can show you that by simply showing you an ultrasound. Now, I have five children, and we lost children, a couple of twin boys, early in the second trimester about 13 years ago. And so I can tell you beyond a shadow of a doubt that Those babies, before they are born, before they leave their mother's womb, they are certainly alive. I've seen their hearts beat. I've seen the ultrasound that shows their skull as they measure their head, and within that skull is a brain. Each of those seven little babies has had their own DNA, and they were five boys and two girls. We named them before they were born, and even the two little boys that we lost, the twin boys that we lost in '09. Well, we named them, and we had a proper burial for them. I can show you scientifically that a baby's alive. But as a Christian, I am to believe the Bible. And the Bible says that we are formed by God in the womb. In Psalm 139, verses 13 and 14, For thou hast possessed my reins, thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wondrously made. That psalm speaks about the fact that God has made us. Isaiah 44 and verse 2, Thus saith the Lord that made thee and formed thee from the womb. Chapter 49 and verse 5, And now saith the Lord that formed me from the womb to be a servant. Jeremiah 1, 5, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee and ordained thee a prophet unto the nation. These scriptures speak to the fact that A baby in the womb is something that is the work of God. Children are a heritage of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is his reward. And so, yes, these are living human beings that are in the womb. 
Do you remember when Mary, the mother of our Lord, entered the room with her cousin Elizabeth, and Elizabeth is carrying John the Baptist? Now, John the Baptist would be filled with the Holy Ghost, even from his mother's womb. But as Mary enters the room, and this salutation is heard of Elizabeth from Mary, the baby, John the Baptist, leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Ghost. A baby leapt for joy at the salutation of Mary, the mother of Jesus, when Mary entered into the room. John the Baptist, being not yet born, leaped for joy. What does that tell you? That this is a living person. This isn't some clump of cells that would one day become a person at some point. We don't really know. But this is a conscious human being. And because of that, well, what applies? James 3, nine, so many other passages, it says that human beings should be treated with respect and dignity because they bear the image of the God who created them. Human beings are special creations, unlike the beasts of the field, unlike the plants, unlike the bacteria, unlike the creeping thing, the insect. We bear the image of God, and so because of that, human beings are worthy of dignity and respect, and it is murder to take the life of another human being. Again, with exception of certain scenarios in the world, like repelling a military or defending your home from a wicked man, or when a government bears that power that God has given them as the powers that be of bearing the sword and being a terror unto evil. Now, here's something for you to think about, and those of you that believe in the doctrines of grace will be well-versed in this and familiar with this concept. Not only are we alive from the moment of our conception, and we are an individual, distinct human being with our own DNA and blood type and brain and heart, arms and legs, we form in the womb as an individual separate from both mother and father. David says that he was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did his mother conceive him. This is Psalm 51 and verse 5. That means that even from the moment of conception, not only are we living human beings, but we're actually all sinners from conception. And so this is why we come forth from the womb speaking lies, because we are indeed sinners from the moment that we come into existence, and we come into existence at conception. Now, I want to answer a couple of questions here that I might call whataboutisms. What about? What about that passage in Genesis when Adam became a living soul when God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life? It's been the opinion of some Christians that until a baby breathes its first breath, well, it's not actually a living soul. It doesn't possess a soul yet. And so things such as an abortion or a miscarriage, they're not issues that we should be concerned about. But I want to be very clear, from those passages we just read, it's obvious that a person prior to leaving the womb and breathing, that that person is a living soul. Again, John leapt for joy, and there's nothing you can do with that passage. David was conceived in sin. He was a sinner from conception. Well, he's obviously a human being from conception, alive and distinct, if he's already a sinner. It is true that God breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life, and Adam became a living soul, but that was Adam. You notice that it doesn't say that God breathed into Eve's nostrils the breath of life. No, God took a rib from Adam and formed Eve. When he took that rib, that rib was a part of Adam's living body. And so he took a living part of Adam, a rib, formed Eve, presented unto Adam this woman, Eve, Adam's wife, 
and that was his wife. God breathing into Adam's nostrils the breath of life is the origin of human life, and this human life is passed from one generation to the next. And so when God breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life, Adam was animated, as it were, and from Adam you have all of the other human beings and the physical life that they have, including Eve, his wife. Now, this involves some sister concepts in Scripture, such as federal headship, such as Christ being the last Adam, and there are many great and interesting things that we could say about depravity and also our salvation as we think about the subject of federal headship and the fact that we all come from Adam, every single one of us, we were all represented in him and we all descend from him. But that's not the purpose for today's broadcast. Suffice it to say, yes, God breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life, but every other human being, well, they became a living human being either at their conception or with the case of Eve, she became a living being directly formed from the living rib that God took from the side of Adam. Another whataboutism is found in the book of Numbers chapter 5. And I received a question about this particular verse this week because at this time, as this is a hot-button topic, which is why I'm talking about it from a biblical perspective, some people will quote this passage and say, well, back in the Old Testament, God actually created a way for a woman, if she was having an affair and a child was conceived, to be proven guilty through drinking a potion and the baby would be aborted. But that's not actually what it says. People interject that and they try to make it say that, but it doesn't say that at all. Now, just to summarize this in Numbers 5, the ashes from a sacrifice are to be taken and mixed with water, and if the woman has done this, as the water enters her digestive tract, it'll be bitter and her belly shall swell and her thigh shall rot, and she'll be a curse among her people. Well, folks take that and they say, see, her belly swells and her thigh rots, that means that she you know, has a disease and loses the child, but it doesn't say anything in the world about losing a child there. It says her thigh will rot. Guess what? Guess what that means in Hebrew? It means her thigh will rot. Guess what it means in the King James Bible? It means her thigh will rot. Some have argued that the rotting of her thigh has to do with the dropping of her thigh. In other words, she's going to be all bloated and walk with a limp. John Gill gave some interesting historical citations of that in his commentary. He said that the Jews literally reported that as a woman drank this, her eyes would bulge and she would become all swollen and covered in veins and everybody would know that she was guilty. But what I want to clarify about that, this is something supernatural because if a woman was innocent, this didn't happen to her. And if the woman was guilty, it happened to her because God actually did that. Now, God has the right to take a life at any time because he's God and we're all sinners and we violated his law and the wages of sin is death. But it doesn't even say that the woman or anyone else here will die. But God in this ritual would show justice, whether the woman was unfaithful or falsely accused. And this was a sense of giving clarity, God directly working in that. But at no time does this actually describe what we would know today as an abortion. And if you look in old commentaries, it's amazing how silent old commentaries are about that, because they were not politically charged about this. They didn't read that into it, nor did anyone try to use it to say that, because, again, 
it wasn't a hot-button political topic. We look at it as such today because we view everything through a political lens to our detriment. But they didn't view it that way in John Gill's day because he doesn't mention it in his commentary. So leaving what Scripture would say about the taking of the life of a baby and a couple of whataboutisms, what do we do as Christians in a post-Roe world? Now listen to me very carefully. Because I have three different points that I want to address on today's broadcast, and each of them are important. We are to buy the truth and sell it not. That comes from the Proverbs. Buy the truth and sell it not. It's easy for us to fall for lies or propaganda. We could fall for lies or propaganda regarding illness. We could fall for lies or propaganda regarding safety devices in a vehicle. I remember when everyone started wanting airbags and seatbelts in cars. And understand, I was a little kid in the 80s. I was born in 81. That seems like it should be 20 years ago, but it was 41 years ago when airbags and seatbelts were first popular equipment in vehicles. People made all sorts of propaganda up about how seatbelts and Airbags actually hurt you more than they help you in a wreck, but I can tell you that they save lives. I can say that without a shadow of a doubt, that seatbelts and airbags save lives. There was propaganda about cigarettes and lung cancer, and things were said that cigarette smoke helps your lung capacity, and it exercises your lungs. And then when people began to die so much from lung cancer, all sorts of other reasons were thrown about among family members of mine who smoked, many of them who ended up with lung cancer— to justify that and to downplay it, it's easy for us as human beings to fall for lies or propaganda. Now, you'll notice that I used examples from a long time ago, so nobody can get mad at me on the broadcast today regarding lies and propaganda that we might have fallen for or might continue to be falling for in our present day and age about political things or viruses or any other things such as that. It's easy for us to fall for lies or propaganda. And Roe v. Wade is no exception to this. As it relates to Roe and the overturning of Roe v. Wade by the United States Supreme Court, I have heard people say that the overturning of Roe bans abortion outright. It actually doesn't. It returns it to the states. And so if you live in a state where it is illegal, and I believe it should be illegal, well, it is illegal to whatever degree that your state has ruled it as such through the legislature, the people that are elected to actually make the laws that govern over us and the rules that we obey in life. I have heard propaganda that said that this will make it illegal to end what we call an ectopic pregnancy. And what that is is when a egg is fertilized outside of the womb, either in a fallopian tube or somewhere else, and it attaches. But since the baby's outside the womb, there's no chance for that baby to survive. And if it doesn't miscarry on its own and it continues to grow, it puts the mother's life at risk as well. But that's not what this has reference to at all. They don't even call that procedure an abortion, as far as the verbiage that the medical community uses, because it's not considered as such. An abortion takes place in the womb. But people are screaming that it bans that on social media and on the news. They've said those words more times in the past week than I've heard in my entire life. And as a dad of so many kids with a wife who has some health problems that we had to monitor very closely during pregnancy, I'm familiar with all of these things. I understand these things because Again, the school of hard knocks has taught us a thing or two as parents. I've also heard that 
things such as birth control or hormones or other related things are now going to be illegal because of the overturning of Roe v. Wade, and that's simply not true either. What this does is undo the ruling of Roe v. Wade that occurred eight years before I was born. That's it. That's what it does. We want to buy the truth. We don't want to fall for lies and propaganda. Now, as we talk about buying the truth, you need to buy the truth that babies are made in the image of God. You need to buy the truth that John the Baptist left for joy in his mother's womb. You need to buy the truth that David was conceived in a state of sinfulness because his parents were descendants of Adam, and we all are affected in depravity through the original sin of Adam. We need to buy the truth. Number two, what do we do in a post-Roe world? We need to teach the truth. I saw a meme this week, and it was posted by a high school friend, someone I haven't seen in more than two decades. But the author of the meme effectively said that he or she never wants to see a Christian at a fertility clinic trying to get help conceiving a child because if we're just supposed to leave it all to God, that goes for Christians too when they can't get pregnant and have a child. If you think that's the reason Christians disagree with abortion, I hope you go back and re-listen to what I've already said on today's broadcast. We oppose abortion, not because we, quote, leave it to God, but because we're bearers of God's image. And a child living in his mother's womb or her mother's womb is an image bearer of God. And to take that child's life, that would be murder. Remember, it is said of the wicked, it is said of the wicked that their feet are swift to shed innocent blood. Those that hate God, according to the Proverbs, love death. We oppose this because it's fundamentally wrong to do, not because we're leaving it to God. Now, by the way, as far as teaching this truth, this is also why slavery is wrong. It's why the United States was wrong for allowing slaves. It's why the South was wrong for doing everything, including war, to keep their slaves. It's why murdering you, listener, is wrong. Because to take your life would be to take the life of someone made in God's image. We are to teach the truth because God's way is better. Now, regarding God's way being better, this is why when women fall pregnant because they have made a mistake, we ought to preach the truth to them about not having sexual relations outside of marriage. But we should also preach the truth to them about the grace of God and our Lord Jesus saving sinful people like me. We should tell them that I'm just as sinful as anybody else, and I've done just as many terrible things as anybody else in the world, that we're no better than anybody else. And we should have compassion for people who make mistakes, because Jesus had compassion on people who make mistakes, and we're not Jesus. We're the people who have made mistakes and found compassion. So I love comparing evangelism to one beggar showing another beggar where to get something to eat. That's certainly fitting in this case as well. We're to teach the truth to others, and many of the people that we teach, well, we need to have compassion on them. But I want to also clarify this. There are others in our culture who need a stern rebuke, eyeball to eyeball, nose to nose. There's a time to be compassionate and a time to be ferocious. And there are some people in this world, and I have engaged with them as I have tried to pray and share God's word outside the abortion clinic here in Huntsville, and also counter-protested pro-choice rallies here in Huntsville, Alabama. I can tell you there are people who are outright livid and angry, hateful and hating one another. And it is our responsibility as gospel preachers to shake the dust of our shoes as a testimony against them. There's a time to be ferocious in what we say, 
And the people who murder babies and make millions of dollars doing this and lie to women, making women think it's okay, no, we need to be very stern to them. Now, lastly, and this is a point that we need to continually keep in mind, prepare now in a post-Roe world to give. In states where abortion is rightly banned, there will be more births. A statistic I read last week, some 86% of women who choose abortion, who have chosen abortion in the U.S., are not married, meaning that it's generally the result of fornication. Less than 1% of abortions occur after a rape, which is another subject for another day, but we should be very, very fierce to rapists. And I would endorse the death penalty when a person is rightly and truly convicted for that crime. But most abortions, the overwhelming majority of abortions, are by single women who got pregnant having sex with someone voluntarily, consensually, and didn't want to keep the child. That's wrong, by the way. But in states where this can't happen, there will be more fatherless children unless these babies are adopted out to loving homes. Now, I remind you of what James says in James chapter 1 and verse 27 Pure religion and undefiled is to visit the fatherless and the widows and their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from this world. You and I have an opportunity in a post-Roe world to love children and to show them, to be the hands and feet of Christ, showing them the love of God as we care for them since they actually got to make it into the world, but their home life is not an ideal situation. And I have seven different ways that you and I can engage in that in our communities. Number one, we can do this individually. If you know a fatherless child, you can help that fatherless child. It's that simple. You can mentor them. You can stand in the gap. You can step up and do something to help him or her and their mother. But we can also do this through the local church. As a church, we can pool our resources and do more and have done many times more to help people in need than one individual could do. And so as the local church, we can visit the fatherless and the widows and their affliction. We can help them, in other words, and relieve their afflictions. Number three, there are great pregnancy centers, many of them Christian pregnancy centers in your community, in my community, in every place where this broadcast airs. I guarantee you there are pregnancy centers from a Christian perspective where doctors and nurses and volunteers team together to help young mothers, to educate them, and to provide care and relief for the children of poverty. Number four, you can help adoption agencies. Agencies such as Lifeline is a great one to help here in the state of Alabama. You can give monthly and you can support children in orphanages. They assist in the adoption process for overseas adoptions. But they're a wonderful organization, and every one of your states and communities has organizations like Lifeline that help with adoptions. Number five, other local charity groups. For the past couple of years, I've partnered with the local group, Graces of Gurley. Some 60% of children in Gurley, Alabama, are on lunch assistance. They receive free lunches because of their situation in the home, because of their parents' income and their home situation. Graces of Gurley steps in and provides food for a couple of hundred kids on a regular basis. And there are other groups, Meals on Wheels, several different groups in each community that helps with things such as that. Number six, beyond places like that that do individual food for students, you have rescue missions and food banks, etc., 
I would encourage every single one of you to make regular contributions to your rescue missions and food banks. And then lastly, number seven, this will make some people mad at me, but I am more than willing to pay a little bit more in my taxes to the state of Alabama to keep babies healthy and educated who came into this world because it's no longer legal to end their life before they leave their mother's womb. I am more than willing to have a little bit more money and a little bit from everybody goes a long way. Go into the funds that provide health care and education for kids who are disadvantaged. Again, pure religion is visiting the fatherless and the widows. If I fold my arms and look down at these poor children who have no choice but to live in the circumstances in which they live, well, I'm not being a Christian at all. In this post-row world, may we be people of compassion, standing firmly for the truth, but at the same time opening our hands to give and to mentor and to love the impoverished in our communities. Again, I'm Ben Winslet, thanking you for listening to Words of Grace today, inviting you to tune in again next week at this time. Until then, may the Lord's richest blessings be yours, is my prayer. If you enjoy the messages you hear on Words of Grace, consider this your invitation to visit a Primitive Baptist Church in your community. Copies of this and other broadcasts are available for download on iTunes and on our website. Address your correspondence to Words of Grace Radio, 641 Moontown Road, Brownsboro, Alabama, 35741. Or visit us online at flintriverpbc.org.